Live with Littlewood is back with me, Mark Littlewood, the Director General of the IEA, and a stellar panel of guests to give us a classical liberal free market angle on the big issues of the week affecting Britain and the world. We'll be covering Partygate, taxes, Macron, and is your safety sufficiently protected online? All of that's coming up on this week's Live with Littlewood. <laughs> Welcome, 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 welcome back to Live with Littlewood with me, Mark Littlewood, the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs, and we've got one hell of a lot to get through in the next hour or so with my star-studded lineup of guests to navigate a free market, freedom-loving way through the events of recent days. Later on in the show, I'll be joined by our very own Victoria Hewson, who's going to be discussing the upcoming online safety bill and why it's probably even worse than you think. It might be even worse than she thinks, actually. Uh, I'll also be asking libertarian film producer and supremo Martin Durkin what he thinks about the Chancellor's wife, who should be held to account for whose taxes, what sort of privacy should MPs expect. And we're going to be joined again by CapEx editor John Ashmore. And I'm going to be putting to him that, you know, Emmanuel Macron's become a bit of a hero of mine. All that's coming up later on the show. But first up... Welcome back to the show to GB News' political correspondent, Tom Harwood. Tom, 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 great to have you back. So well, I've been on your show a couple of times, I think, since you were last here, so it's only fair to invite you onto the sofa here. Uh, busy times for political correspondents in Westminster at the moment with Partygate, right? Oh, almost too busy. It's, uh, it's like I feel a bit of deja vu, actually, at the moment, because I remember standing in the very early hours of the morning in Downing Street in the wet and miserable days of January and February, and it's, it's the worst street in the world to stand in. It becomes a sort of wind tunnel the sun rises but it doesn't in Downing Street it's at the wrong angle yeah, yeah. it's just it's just a horrible place to stand but that was most of my January and February and I thought I'd left that behind me I thought the political situation had moved on that we had other things to talk about and but yet no, no it's we're back, back to it. parties we're back to Met Police investigations and we're back to the dreaded name of Sue Gray yeah okay but I've, I've got I've just got to ask you a question for people in your profession why do you bother standing around in Downing Street? I mean, why don't you just get a green screen? It doesn't really matter that you're just six yards away from a door with number 10 on it, right? You can just have that projected behind you, do you in know your what? bedroom. I, I, I would argue this, were it not for one reason. Uh, and this week it presented itself in the form of Larry the Cat, right. who uh, occasionally pops out of that front door and comes and mingles with us journalists in the press pen opposite, but also we get to see who's walking in and who's walking out. We get to see whether a minister has come in, how long they're staying inside for. That can be very telling. And reading the runes of what's going on in Westminster can sometimes be down to how long any particular minister is inside that building right. for, who's coming and going. Sometimes it can lead to some pretty significant stories. So what's happened here is we know that uh, the Prime Minister, his wife and the Chancellor, it sounds like the cookies thief, his wife and her lover, doesn't it, have all been, um, have all been fined. 
pretty pretty minimal fines, aren't they? I mean, what are they, 50, 100 quid? 50 something? quid. 50 quid, right. So it's a bit like getting a parking ticket. Mm. Uh, none of them are resigning. Um, well, Carrie Johnson certainly not resigning as the Prime Minister's wife. Um, that would be uh, a story. Uh, and they're going to brave it out, and uh, the Conservative backbenchers seem to be behind the Prime Minister, no? The Conservative backbenchers overwhelmingly are not making any moves. Now, the Prime Minister's uh, pretty fortunate in that this has fallen in the middle of parliamentary recess. Parliament isn't back until halfway through uh, next Tuesday, so there's a bit of time for everyone to digest for that sort of heat of the temperature of this situation that we experienced back in February not to arise at this particular moment. Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday will be an interesting one. No doubt mm -hmm. Sir Keir Starmer will press the Prime Minister on these issues. However, it doesn't feel that similar to where we were at, where the Prime Minister was genuinely on that sort of precipice, where we were counting the letters going in. Only one letter has gone in as a result of this fine, and uh, we know that a number of letters actually went out right. after the invasion of Ukraine. And so when are we looking at Conservative MPs, because it is Conservative MPs who really matter here, they're the people who get to decide yep. whether the Prime Minister stays in Downing Street or not. They don't seem to be convinced that this is a material change in circumstances. Wow, OK, that's quite interesting. I mean, I guess from the, you know, this is the tittle-tattle of Westminster politics, meet and drink for you, you know, an august think tank like the IEA is supposed to be above the fray on these <laughs> things. But I guess the principle here is the lawbreakers, lawmaker things, right? So he... Uh, is it right he's the first Prime Minister ever to have, well, not maybe broken the law, but committed a criminal offence, which I think are speeding fines and the like are breaking the law, but are not criminal offences. Well, the angels on the head of a pin. Yeah. between, well, there are certain things that fixed penalty notices are issued for that don't meet the level of criminality right, and, some right. that, and some that do, and uh, whether or not they all fit within this, there are arguments to be had one way or the other. I know that, for example, Tony Blair in the early 2000s had some sort of congestion charge offence. Uh, is that the same level as, ha as daring to have a cake in the cabinet room <laughs> with people uh, with whom you're in a meeting with moments before? Perhaps, perhaps not. It really depends on where your political loyalties lie. Um, but really, when it comes to this particular issue, some people, many people, not least the Chancellor himself, were pretty taken aback that this was the first event by which elected politicians were fined for. Right. Uh, given that this was in the roster of different events that we have known about that have been reported, uh, this doesn't seem like it was the biggest transgression in the world. There are many stories that you can point to of, uh, be it they nurses or anyone else in the public sector who are reported in very positive ways in the press in 2020 for uh, colleagues gathering round, singing them happy birthday, right, giving yeah. them pieces of cake. This happened to people who weren't in Downing Street. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as far as I've been able to make out over the last 24 hours, none of those people were fined. Uh, peculiarly, Perhaps we have entered a situation where it is genuinely one rule for the Prime Minister and another for anyone else. Just the inverse of the right. way that people normally say that. Well, I that you know what, I kind of welcome it. I, I think the people who brought in these rules need to be held to a higher standard than a nurse. Right? I mean, the, the, these guys were appearing on television at five o'clock every bloody evening to tell me I couldn't have a barbecue, right? I mean, uh, and so they, they should be held to the very highest standard, right? Um, I mean, one of the oddities about it is I think the Rishi Sunak and Boris with the birthday cake was actually reported in something like the Times Diary at the time as an afterthought. It wasn't that it was out of the public domain. It's everybody at that time thought it was insignificant. But now there's such a build-up of lots of them. I've lost track of what all these different parties were. Isn't it 
isn't it because there were so many that, that you kind of think the culture there was something wrong? Mm. Had it just been nine minutes with a birthday cake? But it seems that partying was going on morning, noon and night, or am I being unfair? Well, you're exactly right to point out the Times article on the 20th of June 2020, which was referencing the birthday party that happened on the 19th of June 2020. It was written by the deputy political editor of The Times, Stephen Swinford, uh, but also uh, other people contributed to that piece. And you're right, it wasn't the, the crux of the piece. It was, it was treated whimsically. It was, it, was, a, it was a bit of colour to the, yeah, add to yeah, the piece yeah. at the beginning in the introduction. Yeah. It, was, it was talking about the stresses and strains of number 10 and how, oh, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister had a bit of respite uh, yesterday afternoon by having a brief sing-song of happy birthday and a bit right, of birthday yeah. cake. As if it didn't matter. And, and, and the journalists, the senior political journalists who wrote that piece... All shrugged their shoulders. At ..didn't the... think of it as yeah, a particularly yeah. significant event. And no-one who read that thought of it as that. And clearly, the people who briefed it from Number 10 didn't think of it as that. But then when we put on our party gate goggles and where we're searching yeah, yeah. everything that might fit into... You're a feral world, bunch, you political correspondents. Well, suddenly, yeah. suddenly it becomes an awful transgression. Yeah, I get, I get that's right. And you say there's more to come. Remind me, who is Sue Gray? What is Sue Gray? When's a report coming out? This seems to well, have been in limbo forever and a day. Sue Gray is now the most famous civil servant in the kingdom. Yeah. Um, but, of course, she is a relatively senior civil servant, someone who has uh, been conducting various uh, internal investigations within uh, the Cabinet Office, within Number 10, within the culture of, of Downing Street. And, and really, what happened at the beginning of this whole process was Sue Gray was going to uh, write a report, that would then be released, and that would be the end of the matter. Her report got interrupted by the Met, by the Met Police. Cressida Dick, the yeah, then Met yeah, Police Commissioner, yeah. announced an investigation. Sue Gray had to hobble her report, released only a very small part of it, and she can't release that full report until the Met Police conclude their investigation. And we don't know when that will be. They'll tell us when it is, but it's not quite yet. But when they conclude their investigation, Sue Gray can release her full report, unredacted, we can see all the gory details, and then Boris Johnson has promised he'll come to the House of Commons to tell us all exactly what happened. Uh, so it sounds to me like you're going to be spending a large number of days in the coming weeks and months standing outside number 10 with the breaking news of Larry the Cat. Is that, is that about right? <laughs> it sounds about right. It depends how many more of these fines take place, because, of course... Uh, we know that there are several parties by which, uh, within which the, the Prime Minister is implicated. Uh, potentially, next week we'll hear another one, might be a little bit later, but if we get this sort of drip, 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 there'll be various points at which the Met Police announce a further tranche right. of fines, and this story bubbles up again. The worry for the Prime Minister is he won't always be able to point to other things going on. He won't always be able to point to a busy news agenda and a worrying international situation. There will be times when the, there is a lull when Parliament, for example, is sitting, when there will be a greater fever pitch within Westminster. Right. That may be the more dangerous time than right now. God, it is a pretty random arbitrary process whether he lives or dies, isn't it? I mean, that's the way politics goes, I guess. It certainly is. And uh, ultimately, who would have thought we'd be here several weeks ago? If we, if we were having this conversation in the start of January, it looked like parties were over. Allegra Stratton had been fired, remember yeah, yeah. her? Um, and it looked like the Prime Minister was sort of starting to build up back his place in the opinion polls. Then two weeks later, suddenly it looked like the Prime Minister was, was a goner, that he could be literally removed by his own back benches. 
Then uh, two or three weeks later, Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. Boris Johnson takes an international role and is uh, receiving plaudits the world over for how he responded to that crisis. And suddenly it seems like he's in a safer position. Who is to say where he will be in another two or three weeks' time? It's a fool's errand to try and guess this. All I can say is nothing's off the table. Yeah, a week's a long time in politics and a fortnight's three times as long, I'm told, right? Uh, a lot happens. Well, it, I mean, it's been a, a pretty tricky time for the Prime Minister, but perhaps an even trickier time for the Chancellor. I want to get into some tax issues and to help Tom and I navigate the, uh, our way through those. Please give a very warm welcome to CapEx editor John Ashmore. John, good to have you back with us. <laughs> Great to see you, John. Right. Now, this is a bit more sort of meat and drink for the IEA. So this is uh, Mrs Sunak, an extremely uh, rich uh, woman uh, who had uh, nom-dom status, thereby able to avoid a colossal income tax bill had she uh, had British status. Sir Keir Starmer says it was unfair of Conservatives to reduce their family tax burdens while putting up tax for others. The tax burden's gone up under Rishi Sunak. He's trimmed it a little in his last spring statement, but he's still presided over a tax hike. John, what, what, what do you make of this? If you're Chancellor of the Exchequer or a Government Minister, are you under some obligation to maximise your tax liability? In a strict sense, no. Uh, there's two questions here, though. I think the first is whether we expect literally a different legal standard for members of the government or MPs. Uh, personally, I, I don't think so. The second, probably more pertinent question is, is it politically wise for you to be doing this if you are the man who sets tax rates? And his appeal to kind of, oh, this is actually about my wife, it doesn't really stack up when your family is part of a kind of billionaire, massive dynasty. Um, so, yeah, my, my answer would be that uh, politically probably not a particularly sensible thing to do, an absolute gift for Labour as well, when their slogan for the best part of the last year has been one rule for them, one rule for everyone else, to have this uh, perception at least that he's a kind of part of a globe-trotting elite who play by a different set of rules to the average person. The fact that it came so soon after the national insurance hike also just made it even even more of a gift for them. So, no, I don't think we should necessarily ban ministers from certain types of tax arrangements. I mean, the tax system, as you know, Mark, is absolutely littered with exemptions Loop and reliefs. carve-outs, the whole lot. Yeah, I mean, are we going to you know, be up in arms the next time we see a minister in duty-free? Well, that's, <laughs> what I, that's what I wanted to think. That's exactly the kind of principle I wanted to come on to. Look, it's kind of part of my day job to actively court unpopularity, right? <laughs> so the best way I can do that at the moment is to leap to the defence of Rishi Sunak and, Mrs. And, and, and his missus. Um, Tom, what do you make of this? Because, OK, I mean, there's a large amount of money at stake because the Chancellor's wife is from such an affluent family. But as John says, what, should politicians have to declare how much they're, I don't know, putting into their private pension, whether they've bought anything duty-free? Uh, have they taken out an ISA? I mean, there's all sorts of ways. That, you know, have they given away large gifts in order that their estate isn't as much when they die so they avoid inheritance tax? I mean, we're, we're within an inch away saying every MP's tax return should be put in the public domain, aren't we? It is remarkable, given that this story was actually published a month before it reached national prominence. Mm -hmm. It was published in Private Eye, and yet no one really sniffed at it until it became the month of the tax rise. And that comparison is what made it a story that was salient in the minds 
of so many people and it hit at the time at which Rishi Sunak was under a great deal of pressure from a number of various stories whether it was his donations to his former school whether it was indeed the taxes that have gone up, Labour putting out this uh, briefing note to all members of the parliamentary press lobby saying that he's risen taxes 15 times as Chancellor, some uh, more clear tax rises than others, some more dubious in that list, but it's clear he has been net a tax raising yep. Chancellor so far. Um, clearly that hit him at a time at which he was more vulnerable. However, I think that he's responded to it in a peculiar way in that in the first 24, 48 hours of this story, he was saying quite properly that, well, uh, his wife was paying international tax on international mm -hmm. income and paying British tax on well, British, British income. income. Yeah. Uh, and yet, uh, two days later, suddenly a U-turn saying he's abolishing, the, uh, they're, they're renouncing this statement that British tax will be paid on all international income. In effect, some double tax will yeah. be paid, international and British tax. And that really undermines the statement in the first place, why keep this mechanism for people, which has been a net benefit, most people argue, for the country as a whole, to have people who are globe-trotting sort of people being able to, to base themselves here, to pay tax here as well as overseas. Uh, why then renounce yeah, that? Yeah. It sort of undermines the argument in a way. It's almost the worst of both worlds that we've arrived at. And John, going back to your point, again, on this, where do we draw the line? I appreciate that the, the sums of money here are, you know, eye-watering for an average voter. And, you know, so it's a bit, uh, there's more money at stake than buying a bottle of gin duty-free. But the same principle at stake. And where I would be, um, I think I would be more inclined to cry hypocrisy, was if Sunak was saying something along the lines of, an enormous manifesto commitment for us is to abolish non-dom status, which we consider to be a great injustice in the tax system and yeah. an unfair uh, way of treating the highly affluent whilst benefiting from it. Or if a politician said, you know, I'm wholly against ISIS. I believe these to be an outrageous middle-class tax break, appalling. It should be eradicated from the code while still taking advantage of them. But on non-dom status, there's been no suggestion that the government's policy or Rishi Sunak says it should be scrapped. So whilst it's there on the statute books, as Tom says, a good number of people would agree it's a sensible thing for an international economy to have, why back down? Yeah, well, I mean, hypocrisy is one of those political charges that means whatever you want it to mean at a given moment. It doesn't actually, like you say, it doesn't really uh, fit the dictionary definition. I think it is worth saying, just picking up on what Tom was saying there, that... Uh, there's not much sense, in my view, in abolishing non-dom status, and it's quite telling that even Labour, even now, Labour are not saying they would abolish it. I think Yvette Cooper went on the shows on Sunday and was saying, oh, we're going to have a look at, which is politician for we're not going to do anything. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I think it was Corbyn's policy to abolish it, which almost certainly means it was a bad policy. <laughs> um, but of all people, I think I'm right in saying it was Ed Balls back in the day when he was Shadow Chancellor, he said, we shouldn't get rid of this because it will mean less money coming into the country. And it is, I think it is sensible in a globalised economy to have some kind of provision for people who have assets or business interests in other countries. Also worth saying we have a double taxation treaty with India anyway, so that's, that element of it was always a bit of a, a red herring. I think the appeal to her being a citizen of India as, as well in the initial statement was a mistake because it has nothing to do with it, really. It's citizenship and domicile are not the same thing. Um, and then there's also this stuff about the green card. Yeah, which I was so more interested in that, because that seemed just to involve, very odd. To uh, if I understood yeah. the rules correctly here, to get a US green card, this is the visa that allows you to uh, work in America, um, part of that is that you've 
a pledge to the stars and stripes that your intention is to live in the United States permanently, right? Yeah. And it's uh, if that was the pledge, it's hard to believe that Rishi Sunak genuinely meant that pledge. No, it seems to not me to be an issue with being the member of Parliament for Richmond yeah, and North. It, it seems to me to be an issue where the American government would be sort of up in arms rather than the average mm -hmm. British voter. Certainly, it's got very little to do with tax dodging. Anyone who's had any dealings with the American tax authorities will be knowing that if you want They're to even lower your tax bills, yeah, yeah, don't go yeah, anywhere yeah, near yeah, the yeah, IRS. Right. And, and yet, the interesting thing about this is that it was asked to Jen Psaki, the uh, spokesperson for President uh, Biden, Biden at, uh, at, a, at a press briefing just last week. And she seemed to not really mind about it. She said, well, this is not a really an issue for the White House. Um, it doesn't seem like this has had the White House up in arms. And maybe this is a tacit admission that people who achieve green cards might not always be uh, following the letter of those green cards. But also, let's not forget that Rishi Sunak did live in America. He was working uh, at a financial institution in California for several years. And it could be the case that upon becoming an MP, he simply didn't give up the green card. Yeah, yeah. It could be a, an, an oversight, yeah, a yeah. moment of laziness, rather than some deliberate uh, affectation to continue this on, uh, or, or some idea that he might move to America once he was done being an MP. But John, you were sort of you, you were uh, saying that um, uh, you know the tax code is unbelievably complicated, and it does now seem that senior politicians, and you might even say this is now true of increasing number of corporations, you've got to kind of pay the tax that looks right rather than the tax that you're legally liable for so you know and big corporations will now enter into negotiations with hmrc as if yeah. it's a kind of salary negotiation <laughs> rather than just saying what are the rules okay well here's five percent of this twenty percent of that thirty percent of the other i mean the only way we're ever going to solve this is to simplify the rule book isn't it well, indeed. I mean, the fact that we have an office for tax simplification probably tells you everything you need to know about what's wrong with our tax code. It doesn't strike me that they've actually simplified the tax code a great deal. Uh, as Tom said, Rishi Sunak has raised quite a lot of taxes. His last spring statement was basically a lot of kind of smoke and mirrors saying, oh, this is a tax-cutting statement, when really he was just taking the edge off mm -hmm. all of the previous tax rises that he had announced. Um, I do think, yeah, I think there's an, uh, an element of truth in you saying that companies and probably more individuals than companies will choose something that looks, looks good rather than necessarily is. Um, as for what rate, ta you know, big corporates pay, I think it's the product of a kind of competitive global tax system. I think it's what you would really Well, they expect, keep arguing about where their IP is located. Is it, is it yeah. funny, though? Yeah. We're comparing these two things. Uh, people who want the Amazons of this world to pay more cash uh, want Amazon to not pay its tax where it does its business. They want to pay it here. Whereas people who argue that Rishi Sunak's wife should pay their tax here, she, they want her to not pay her tax where it does its business, <laughs> but, but where it, but uh, or, or where, where she where lives. she happens and to be located to be in the world a, at the time. Yeah. To be a bit of a, a, a cross-purpose argument there, in that it's one rule for companies in their view and another rule. For individuals, either you pay tax where you live, or you pay tax where you do business, and it doesn't seem that the two are relatively consistent. There. But wh wh why do you think it is that there seems to be now a, 
the smart electoral law of British politics is you have to go around pretending to be poorer than you really are. Exactly the opposite in America. I think Donald Trump is not as rich as he claims to be. In the yeah. United States of America, you have to sort of, well, I'm actually richer than you think. Uh, no British politician would ever say that over here, right? Rishi Sunak no. has to pretend to be poorer than he thinks or not talk about his, his wife's family's highly successful business. You know, but don't want to get into that. You know? And you get to see all sorts of trappings of that. I've seen sort of images of the shoes he's wearing, which are sort of ludicrously expensive pair of slippers or something. thermos flask. His thermos flask. over £100. Pounds. That was a scandal at one well, point. I mean, if you're married to a multi-millionaire, <laughs> then you, I guess you do. So here we have to pretend to be hair-shirted. It's bizarre, isn't it? I remember the, there was a funny example, obviously, of George Osborne sort of tweeting having a burger and chips while he was doing his budget, as if it was like Man of the People stuff. Um, although he did then go and do a, a, um, a lobby lunch where he made a joke about not being able to get the Mook Lobster. <laughs> so, yeah, he was capable of a bit of self-effacing banter. I don't think the British electorate necessarily has a problem with wealthy people being in government. I mean, David Cameron, George Osborne, they were obviously pretty well off. Winston Churchill was literally born in a palace, mm -hmm. and he's our most popular politician probably ever. Um, so it's more that whether or not they conduct themselves in a certain way. Um, the difference between America, I think, is obviously just a plainly cultural one. People are much less suspicious of people who are very wealthy there, they deem it to be the result of success or whatever, whereas well, here I think it's, it's associated... system if you're rich. Yeah, here I think it's associated with that kind of landed aristocracy thing rather than... Which is ridiculous, yeah. given that Rishi Sunak yeah. is clearly not a, a hereditary... No, no, Brit uh, Nor was his father-in-law. Uh, no, but I mean, this is clearly someone who's the product of an incredibly successful family, mm. and that's something that we should be celebrated. It does irritate me massively that when you look across to America and you look on both sides of the aisle, in America. And Nancy Pelosi, one of the richest politicians, Joe Biden incredibly wealthy, Obama now massively wealthy, of course the Bushes, of course the Reagans, of course the Clintons, of course Donald Trump. You know, all of these political dynasties, many of them are, are to some extent more hereditary wealthy yeah, yeah. than families in the United Kingdom and yet we sort of shrink from it in a way. I wonder how much of this is sort of a, a, too much of a reaction against what people now see as an evil Victorian age when actually I think we probably should learn a bit more from the Victorians, whether it's being able to build things, mm -hmm, whether it's mm -hmm. being able to deliver world-class infrastructure, being proud of the country in which we live, um, but also being able to put up success on a pedestal. I think to some extent we're rejecting some of those historical British... Uh, elements of, of, of success in society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very good point. Well made, gents. Uh, well, I, I, I want a, another guest to join us on what we think of tax and what we should expect of our politicians. He's He's got a very uh, sophisticated and appropriately cynical approach, I think, to politicians, one that goes down very well here at the IA. So, Kasim, please do give a very warm welcome to libertarian documentary maker, film supremo, star of uh, silver screen and small screen, film producer Martin Durking. Uh, Martin, welcome, welcome, welcome. Lovely to have you with us, sir. Lovely to be here. So, uh, <coughs> You've, you've worked in the media for a pretty long time. What's, what do we make of the affairs of politicians? I don't mean their sexual affairs, their financial affairs. I mean, how much should they just say, sod off, it's none of your business, you know, I'm a legislator, but 
you know, my wife's business practices or whether I've bought an ISA or um, whether I've, you know, bought duty-free as neither here nor there, I'm acting within the law. Or do we, the poor downtrodden tax-paying people, have a right to know much more about them and whether they're gaming the system? What's your take on that, Martin? Uh, well, I, well, I think we should know absolutely every last thing about them and um, um, and, be, and be really cruel and mean to as many of them as, as possible for any, any imaginable any number of reasons. I mean, I think they, on, the, on this case, I mean, I think his crime, uh, their crime, the wife's whatever, in my view, is less that they've been evading or avoiding or whatever it is. I approve of both evading and avoiding taxes. <laughs> uh, the crime is that they impose the damn things in the first place, which is, you know, utterly shocking and awful. And the sad thing is that everyone's up in arms because he's trying to avoid tax. Who, you know, we have all these high taxing parties. Who is up in arms about the fact that we're being taxed so much? Yeah, who is up in arms about that? I mean, other than the four of us, obviously. <laughs> Why aren't more people up in arms about that, do you think, Martin? I mean, maybe they are a bit now. I mean, it's been part of the cost of living discussion, right? You know, that tax is up. Well, I think that it's sort of crept up slowly over a long period of time. But I think that, you know, the growth of the state has been so, uh, 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 I mean, enormous in the 20th century. And we've ended up, it's created an entire kind of class of bureaucrats, civil servants, the public sector, uh, the intelligentsia, who are very happy with a very big state. And they've managed to establish this you know, cultural norm that we think tax is a good thing. And that you know, he's naughty because he doesn't pay taxes. And anyone who doesn't pay these sort of crucifying taxes are bad. Tom, you're, you're GB News, still a relatively new TV station, re reaching out to kind of new viewers that you guys think have been neglected, you know, beyond the liberal metropolitan elite. What, what do you think the, view, the, the opinion of your viewers would be about their tax bill? Is it just sort of treated as an annoyance but an act of God? Or do they sort of think, no, this is, this is outrageous. I, I, I want to find a party or a government that will actually lower this bill. I'm sick and tired of this. You know, I'm going to look across all the candidates and who's, who's making the best pledge to cut my income tax or VAT or whatever it might be. So we do get a lot of viewers writing in and whatever, but I do like to take a representative sample and I know that sometimes the people that comment in the Daily Mail comment section or well, I used to work at Guido Fawkes that mm. wonderful website the comment section uh, sometimes not quite so wonderful not always are those people who write in that representative what I do do though is speak to a lot of pollsters and what the pollsters tend to tell me is that people absolutely loathe being taxed more they absolutely loathe the idea of the government borrowing money but they also absolutely loathe the idea of any government service being in any yeah. way cut. And so you get this intractable situation where any option is troublesome for the government. And so what they tend to do is try and raise these sort of stealth taxes, where taxes are raised on people without them really knowing. Oh, let's not tax people, let's tax corporations. Yeah, yeah. Well, what are ta what, what does You can only tax human beings doing? at the end of the day. What does yeah. taxing corporations do? Yeah. Well, it's either taxes the people who work for the corporations, or the things that the corporations sell, or the people who run the corporations. And ultimately, that means that prices go up, yeah, investment yeah. goes down, and wages go down. Uh, really, what we're looking at is this situation, this very peculiar situation, where sometimes politicians will have this soundbite. The Labour Party has a new soundbite against the Conservative Party. There's a very good soundbite. But the Tories it's are the party of high tax. High tax, low growth. And they're absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> However, then you ask, well, which taxes would you cut, Labour Party? They'll say they'll raise the taxes on the energy companies. They'll say that they want to go after billionaires. The corporations, the billionaires. And you actually end up thinking, well, you're not going to change the tax burden 
the slightest jot. I talked to the Liberal Democrats. I was interviewing their, their party leader just a couple of weeks ago, uh, who was decrying the fact that the tax burden has risen to its largest, to its highest state since Clement Attlee. And I asked, well, what would you do? And he says, well, our policy is to put in a penny on income tax. Right. Oh, you're going to increase income tax? What? I mean, that was your manifesto the last time. No single party is advocating a, a route by which we would decrease that overall tax burden. It's a very concerning situation. John, what do you put this down to, this uh, lamentable state of affairs? that even if it wasn't an overriding majority, you would have thought there was enough of a tranche of the electorate who actually said, my tax being too high is a pretty defining feature of how I'm going to vote. And it's not obvious at all what option on the ballot paper you'd plump for. I think the lack of an option is sort of self-fulfilling in a way. I mean, the only people who actively talk about serious tax cuts are kind of in this sort of world that we're in now, in kind of think tanks in the political world. I mean, the Conservatives haven't been a low-tax party for a pretty long time, much as I wish they were. The other thing I'd just say is that we, we talk about tax to the, you know, ad nauseum, but we're really just kind of shifting the deck chairs on the fiscal Titanic because we never talk about growth. And we, you know, the government likes to say that, oh, we've got the highest growth in the G7. That's only because we had a massive recession. Now yep. we're coming back from it. And everywhere in the yeah. G rest of the G7 is pitiful as well. Yeah, we seem to think that we can get away with just kind of tweaking tax rates here and there and doing lots of uh, policy measures that actively impede our economic growth. I mean, housing's my own big hobby horse. But it's not just housing. I did a piece today about how we can't even get enough lab space in Cambridge, which I think is Tom's home city, in fact, um, because the planning process is really slow. We've got a lot of demand, which is great, because our life sciences is really good, but it's really slow to get anything built. So again, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. We've got loads of capital mm -hmm. that wants to go into this industry, but we can't do it. I mean, and there's all sorts of examples of this. Right. Well, gents, just stay with us, because I think I've got a, a, a solution for you. Um, uh, this next session we're calling On March Towards Freedom. Uh, I've spent the first 25 minutes or so trying to defend uh, Rishi Sunak and his wife. I'm now going to put to you that Emmanuel Macron deserves a much, much better hearing than he tends to get from guys and girls uh, of our sort of attitudes. Here's a little bit of a record of Macron. He abolished the French wealth, wealth tax in 2018. He's cut income taxes on, and, and taxes on corporations uh, by 8% to 25%, uh, cut taxes on individuals. He's made it easier to hire and fire workers, and he's deregulated the SME sector in France. He's given, says an unnamed company boss, a sense of regulatory stability and has simplified the rules. His policy for the current election, uh, it will be a runoff between him and Marine, Marine Le Pen, of course, uh, in uh, about 10 days' time, includes increasing the inheritance tax threshold, extending it to more relatives of the deceased, wider tax cuts were 15 billion euros a year, raising the retirement age from 62 to 65, and further loosening labour market regulations. Tom, this guy would be kicked out of the Tory party for being a fanatical ERGer, wouldn't he? Do you know what? He wouldn't have been my first choice in the French elections, but compared to Marine Le Pen, 
Macron every single day of the week. This is someone who said that Britain was lucky to have Margaret Thatcher, and he was absolutely right. He's far more in her mould. And actually, Marine Le Pen is far more in the sort of dirigist mould, the sort of post-war consensus mould, the uh, autarky mould, the sort of people who don't like enterprise, who don't like trade, who want to have a high-spending, high-welfare society that's closed off from the world. Macron, actually, in many ways, as you rightly point out in so many of the is, 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 is fiscally to the right of where the Tory party is. And that's a remarkable situation to find ourselves within. Uh, really, this, this is someone who is dragging France, albeit from a ridiculous base. It's, it's easier to cut taxes when you have ridiculous, peculiar taxes brought in by a socialist, Francois Hollande, in the, in, in, in the way that they were, in the way that London became one of the largest French cities on the planet. So many A proud tax haven, indeed. French a proud tax people yeah. fled to the United Kingdom yeah. because of that ridiculous government. Well, of course, it's easy to roll back some of the excesses of that system, but I do think that Macron has a genuine reforming zeal when it comes to these situations. And I think your analysis is absolutely right. If you're of a free market bent, there's only one choice in the election in 10 days' time. Martin, is Emmanuel Macron one of your great libertarian heroes of recent years? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, choosing to be the most um, classical liberal French president is like a kind of tallest dwarf in the circus competition. <laughs> um, um, and I think, I mean, you're right, he's sort of doing sort of the right things, but I mean, changing the, uh, 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 trying to challenge French statism is like trying to push a pyramid. You know, it's enormous. I mean, the uh, government spending is around 50 per 70 55% of GDP. 55, 57% of GDP. If his, all his cuts happen and da-da-da-da-da happens and he keeps on his course, by 2026 they're saying it'll be 54%. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, you've still got a country that is communist China, 10% of the total workforce work for the government. In France, it's, I think, 27 28%. I mean, you know, this is a, an enormous nut to crack. So much as it's great that he's doing so he's much. He's sort of chipping away at the nut there, isn't he's he? He's sort of chipping I didn't, I wish he didn't have that kind of sort of technocratic grandeur kind of thing going on as well, because, you know, what you really need is, a, you know, a Thatcherite populist. And he seems to be a Thatcherite technocrat. Right. Sort of all the lack of appeal that technocrats have. Um, but, um, but it is, a, 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 as you say, hats off for doing what he's done. But my God, I mean, in the, you know, even in the 1970s, the French economy um, uh, uh, it was 30% public spending to GDP. I mean, you know, it's twice that now as a proportion of GDP. It's the, the, the scale of the challenge is... Yeah, and he's only... What, what's your take on Macron then, John? What do you, where, where do you... I mean, he's, he's, he's certainly... Martin and Tom are both right, I mean, from a, from a ludicrous height. But yeah. at least you could sort of say the trajectory, even though there are rather shallow trajectories in the yeah. right direction there. Yeah, by French standards, he's done a decent job, but that by French standards caveat is a pretty important one. He's an interesting figure. I mean, he started off as a minister under Francois Hollande mm -hmm. without actually being a member of the Socialist Party. Um, I would describe him more as a Blairite than a Thatcherite, mm. really. Mm. He's much more Blairish in his demeanour, in his political outlook. His, his slogan in 2017 was en même temps, so 
at the same time. It was all very, on the one hand we can do this, on the other we can do this. He was a triangulator, so that was his thing. But as Martin says, I mean, my big issue with Macron is not so much his policies, but his auteur, his, the way every time he goes on a walkabout in a town, someone kind of confronts him, has a go at him, and he's like, hey, show me some respect. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. Don't call me Manu. Yeah, That's that the, was very yeah. funny. Yeah. A teenager was like, hey, Manu. And he was like, oh, 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 I'm Monsieur le Président. <laughs> and he's got that sort of, okay. he's got that class swap vibe about him as yeah, well. Yeah, right. right. Sod the tax cuts, I can't abide pomposity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and he hates Britain as well. So that's, uh, yeah. Oh, they all do that. They're all yeah. French. Yeah, but, um, uh, Tom, I know we've got, to, we've got to say goodbye to you in just a moment, but the, um, one of the candidates who nearly made it to the, the, the runoff in the French presidential elections, what's his name, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, mm. um, his tax policy, what rate of income tax do you think he wanted to be applied at incomes above Three hundred and sixty thousand euros per annum. Three hundred sixty thousand euros. That's rough terms. What that's just over three hundred thousand pounds per annum. I mean, a very high, decent income. What do you know, Tom? What income tax rate? I know rate? how peculiar he is in other areas of policy. So I'd say it's upwards of. 75%. Martin, Martin, give you... Oh, God, sorry, is it 93? 100%. 100%. <laughs> what was the suggestion? What do you think the consequence of that yeah. might have been Jeez, if you're I mean, presently playing football for, say, Paris Saint-Germain? Uh, where do you think you might be playing football five next five years ago saw its entire financial sector depart and move to London? I mean, the idea that they're even entertaining... But, I mean, ultimately, sadly, this is why uh, the, the uh, Les Republicains candidate, Pécris, did not get the 5% threshold. So many centre-right voters were so terrified that Menchelon might even go yeah. into that final round that they held their noses and, I think, disgracefully, voted for Le Pen. To some extent, this explains the peculiar dynamic yeah. whereby the combined vote of the socialists and the centre-right Les Republicains uh, was around, what, five, six, seven percent of the vote in total. This is and like the, the Tories and Labour getting seven percent between them. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's a bigger upset than Brexit that has yeah. happened in French politics. Yeah, yeah. Tom, it's been great having you with us. Uh, look forward to inviting you back soon. Look forward to being on your GB News show again soon. Uh, thanks very much indeed. Uh, John, and Martin stay with us. Uh, on the subject of tax, earlier this week I had a uh, really good debate with patriotic millionaires. Uh, this is a group of very rich people who think they should be paying even more tax than they presently do. Um, Gary Stevenson, who's made a lot of money as a trader, correctly predicting uh, the non-movement of interest rates was uh, debating against me. It was chaired by our um, head of political economy here, Christian Nemitz. It will be up on the IA London YouTube channel uh, in a day or two, so make sure that you've hit the subscribe button to make sure you get a notification of when it's up. But here's a little taster of the debate. £450 billion has been transferred from the government to the wealthy in the last two years, a phenomenally large amount. And if you raise interest rates now, that means the government will have to start paying interest to the rich on that 450 billion pounds. And debtors, which is, you know, young, young families, young parents, will have to pay high interest on their mortgages to 
rich. This is going to make inequality but, even worse. But higher. again, I'm, I'm just trying to work out whether we're vigorously agreeing, but just looking at this down the different ends of the telescope. The government, governments of, of, of all stripes have decided since 2001 to run budget deficits. It's now more than 20 years since we run a budget surplus. But much, much larger than the last two years. Significantly larger. Yes, well, significantly yeah. COVID, obviously, colossal. But also, it was very, you know, very large in the immediate uh, um, aftermath of the 2008 crash. Yeah. The austerity of the coalition government was a very modest cut in real terms expenditure, but still deficit, 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 deficit. So if the policy of the government is to spend more money than it is bringing in in receipts, receipts basically tax revenues, they might have one or two minor ways of raising money other than that, I guess sale of assets, that kind of thing. But basically, if the government in rough and ready terms wants to spend more than tax revenue, it needs to borrow that money. So it needs to borrow it from the likes of you or Jeff Bezos, because we've decided we haven't got the money to spend on the NHS this year or on education or on road building or whatever it might be. But we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. And that requires us to use some of Gary's money to do it. So lend us some money, Gary, so we can keep the lights on in the hospital this year. Mm -hmm. Now, you can approve or disapprove of that, but that's been a political decision to consume, to spend more than the government's actually got in its wallet, to spend more than it's got in its coffers, not just once, for a generation now, uh, let alone the promises and the, and the sort of liabilities of gold-plated public sector pensions that we're all going to have to pay. Now, that's a political choice. Mm -hmm. And if you want to meet those bills, you've got to find the resources from somewhere. Guess what? Gary and Jeff Bezos come into view. You know, how about lending us some money because we want to spend it now? Uh, so, I mean, that's what's happened. And I'm, I'm wondering whether you're on the sort of same side as me, that the government should have balanced its books a long, long time ago. So that was me debating Gary Stevenson from Patriotic Millionaires. The whole video will be up on the IEA London YouTube channel any minute now. So, again, make sure that you hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you're enjoying this show, please give it the thumbs up. That helps us with the YouTube algorithm. So I'm not quite sure that we've entirely put the affairs of Britain and our tax system to rest yet. And we haven't quite finished on making sure that France moves away from its unbelievably high state spending role and Macron's just perhaps picking away at it. But to join us to give her thoughts on Frexit, Brexit and a whole range of other issues, please give a very warm welcome to the IEA's very own Victoria Hewson. Victoria. <laughs> Great to have you with us. Um, Victoria, what's your, what's your take on what's going on, what's happening on, uh, across the channel? Am I right to be praising Macron as, uh, albeit as, um, as Martin says, the sort of tallest dwarf in the circus, but nevertheless a Western leader who is cutting taxes? I think it's fair to say that he is certainly the more economic liberal of, of the two candidates. But we were just discussing in the office earlier today um, is it, uh, Macron has basically, as part of his strategy uh, to win over centrist voters away from uh, Le Pen, he's, he's taken what I think is potentially a quite risky step, as David Cameron found out, um, of essentially calling this presidential election a referendum on Frexit, because the, the idea being that Marine Le Pen is essentially um, either overtly by her policies or secretly in her heart, uh, essentially wants France to leave the EU. And in, in that case, I suppose that would almost cast her as a bit of a Corbyn character who in his heart really did want to leave the EU but couldn't say so out loud for, uh, for reasons of electability. But I think it's certainly true that uh, Le Pen has wound down her 
uh, Eurosceptic tendencies. I think formally, actually, her position has changed from supporting Frexit to exactly. actually formally supporting continuing to stay in the European exactly. Union. Exactly, yeah. but also her substantive policies, again, a little bit like Corbyn, are incompatible her, with her EU membership. Her substantive policies would require either France just widely, broadly violating lots of EU laws or um, actually having to leave anyway if, if they wanted to do it. So, um, yeah, f um, but again, it's an interesting one. Calling it a, a referendum on Frexit, might that actually lead to an outcome that um, that, that Macron... Because the interesting thing this time, I mean, obviously it's a rerun of last time, right? So exactly the same two candidates have made it through. And last time, I can't remember the number, Macron got about two-thirds of the vote or something in the second exactly. round, absolute slam dunk. Mm. This time, although the polls suggest he'll win, it's a, it's a considerably narrower proposition, sort of 52-48. Can't remember where I got those well, numbers from, 52-48. <laughs> I, I think that's what the polls <laughs> Landslide. Yeah. I'm, I'm not convinced it's going to be that close. I, I'm right. pretty, my operating assumption yeah, is that all of Mélenchon's voters <laughs> will go to Macron just to keep... Well, I think that I think quite a lot of them will either stay at home or and a substantial minority will go for Le Pen but enough will go for Macron that I guess he'll win by more like sort of 10-15% than right. 4 or 5% but remember like, I mean French elections are really odd because sometimes in the first round I think mm -hmm. last time Macron got 5 million votes in the first round and 25 or, sorry, Chirac in 2002 got 5 million votes in the first round and 25 million in the second round. When he was against so Marine Le Pen's father, Jean-Marie Le Pen. And that yeah. was 82-18. Yeah. And so it seems to, each time Le, uh, Le Pen goes in, they seem to up their yeah, share it's, by it's about 15%. It's a funny system. Um, Martin, let me ask you, you were, the, you were the producer of Brexit, the movie. <coughs> a very fine uh, piece of work. We'll uh, make sure we actually put a link to that in the show notes below if you haven't seen it. Uh, brilliant. Uh, Overview and insight into all of the pro-market opportunities. Not least because you were in it, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mentioned my bits were particularly <laughs> spectacular, of course. But uh, with regard to Brexit, did you, did you expect Euroscepticisms to spread more elsewhere, that we'd see Frexit, Grexit? I really want there to be a referendum in Italy, because I think Quitterly is, is better than all these exit <laughs> things, Quitterly. But uh, actually, looks like it's just us out or do you think that it will sooner or later spread elsewhere? Um, I mean it would be nice to think that it would spread but I sort of am I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised because I mean remember the enormity of the effort to overturn it here and I think there is a much deeper longer tradition of an attachment to individual freedom and the ability to kick politicians out of power and so on and so forth in Britain than there is in the rest of Europe so if it took that monumental effort here in France, where you know the, the knee-jerk statism is much stronger among the sort of general population and the whole whole of Europe, broadly speaking, because there's less of a tradition of individual freedom, uh, you know, I think that it, it's 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 a much you know, longer longer bet. But do you, do you also think it might be rather more dramatic? I mean, Brexit was obviously dramatic, and I think it you know the the took quite a lot of our friends on the continent to go through the five stages of grief, and I'm not sure they have got, but. They would now rationalise it by saying, well, they were always the awkward, the awkward sods in the corner. They joined late. They said they'd never join. Then they joined and they've been grumbling ever since. Hardly surprising they're the first to leave the party. Whereas if, and, you know, I'm not suggesting this is imminent, whichever way the French presidential election go, but if France were to leave, or Italy, or the Netherlands, oh, one of the it. founding members, that would be game up, do you think? Yeah, that's it. 
Uh, pretty unlikely, though. Unlikely, yeah. Although, I mean, who would you put your money on being the most likely, even if it's odds against any other country going Victoria? Oh, it's got to be probably Hungary or Poland, especially if, due to their um, economic growth, they become net contributors rather than beneficiaries. Um, I think then, you know, the, the way that they are currently being treated like the naughty children in the class by the European Commission and the European sort of elite uh, polity. Um, but again, I wouldn't even put either of them leaving at 50-50. Yeah, yeah, odds against. Martin, do you have, I mean, do you think it's odds against all of the other members, but who would be the top of the pick and the most likely to follow the Brexit clarion call? Crumbs, I have no idea. I know. I hope all of them, obviously. <laughs> you, don't, you don't like my idea, my idea of the Republic of Ireland rejoining the United Kingdom? Well, I mean, that's a, we could start the campaign. We could start the campaign. <laughs> might, take a, might take a bit of time. John, I know you need to leave us very shortly, but um, what's your take on it? How, how do you think whatever shakes down in in France on uh, Sunday week, and uh, I, I guess the, the smart money is that Macron will be re-elected, perhaps, as you suggest, by a heavier margin than was indicated in the last polling. But how do you see that the, the EU changing, emerging, or reforming, or is it just mm. going to be in a U27 and we're not going to be in it, and actually that's set the table for the next 20 or 30 years? Oh, I wouldn't like to look as far ahead as 20 or 30 years, but I certainly think for the foreseeable, the next five, ten years, I can't see massive changes. If anything, they're going to try and recruit more members in the Balkans and places like this. Um, Macron certainly has very little enthusiasm for um, any kind of root and branch reform. His main, I think the main thing you might see is because of Ukraine and Russia is that EU actually tries to take on even more power and try and assert itself. Finally, the thing that Brexiteers always warned of was the idea of an EU army, and I think we're actually getting gradually closer to that. The thing probably present, preventing it is the kind of generally sclerotic nature of the organisation. And the NATO alliance is surely the, better, alliance, way, yeah, is the yeah. better way of realising that. We're seeing that yeah, in real time. Yeah, but these, like, these calls for kind of European sovereignty and all these kind of other nebulous concepts, and, and that is the, the sort of bigger, biggest change I could reasonably foresee in a shortish time frame, I'd say. A more coherent kind of foreign policy angle. John, been great to have you with us. Thank Keep up much. the fantastic work at CapEx. Thanks very much indeed Cheers. to John. We're going to move on to the third, final section. Uh, well, actually, our fourth topic, our third big, third big section. We're calling this In Safe Hands. Uh, do we actually need the government to start getting tough on on tech firms. We've got the online safety bill coming up before Parliament very shortly. Let me just give you a little bit of what it covers. It imposes a duty of care model on tech companies with massive potential fines up to potentially 10% of worldwide revenues. I don't know what those, that amounts to, but certainly considerably bigger than the 50 quid fine for having a birthday cake. Possible prison sentences for named managers. Uh, the bill would introduce a new category of online speech known as legal but harmful, which companies have a duty to protect adults from. It introduces a duty on companies to have regard for free speech online, but only regard for it. The idea behind the bill is to protect free speech, its, it's uh, supporters claim, whilst holding tech companies to account and making the internet safer. 
uh, government impact assessment estimates that what this bill would bring in, um, the cost of the economy would be a bit more than £2 billion over the next 10 years. Victoria, this bill has been a p- pretty big uh, tranche of your work here at the IEA. Tell us about it, and once you've told us about it, if it's not obvious uh, from your description, why should we be worried about it? Well, the bill is, uh, has become a many-headed beast. The latest uh, iteration of it comes in at about 220 pages, which I have been buried in for the last couple of weeks trying to, uh, trying to understand it. Uh, the definition of harm alone runs to about half a page. So that gives you a flavour of the complexity and also the, the, the challenge that the government has set themselves to both define harm and try and regulate it away because they've got this idea that um, the, the internet platforms, and they really have in mind the, the, the big platforms, the Facebooks, the Googles, although actually they think that in reality 25,000 platforms are going to be in scope of this legislation. I didn't and know there were so many. Well, it's it's. All, it, I read a, a letter the, on on Twitter the other day from a man who runs a small um, internet forum for whiskey fans to compare their tasting notes. That's in scope for this. Mm-hmm. He's going to now have to run an active moderation policy to make sure children can't access it and to make sure that nobody is using it for criminal activity. And and actually, the duties on that kind of site will be quite light, but they are in scope of mm-hmm. the bill. And what this is really doing, um, and this, none of this is deny, to deny that pretty unsavoury stuff goes on online, whether it's child sexual abuse and exploitation, um, other crimes to do with terrorism and people trafficking. But those things are already all illegal. The government even says in its impact assessment, yeah, we kind of thought about maybe just resourcing law enforcement better, but we've discounted that. So we're going to try and regulate the whole internet instead to keep people safe. And what this amounts to, the best way I think I can try and dis- explain this in, in a couple of sentences, is that the, the presumption against prior restraints on speech is, is, is gone. Current sort of speech-based laws to do with whether it's to do with hate speech or or incitement or, or harassment or any of these things sort of require an offence to have been committed first and then the police will investigate it, the courts will think about it and there may be a criminal conviction. This does away with all of that mm-hmm. and just requires the platforms to have uh, reasonable suspicion that a particular item of content might amount to an offence and therefore censor it, take it away so it will never see the light of day. That's, well... To me, that's extremely worrying. I hope I've managed to to get across how how worrying this is, that it's going to be up to the automated moderation technologies deployed by Google and Facebook to try and work out, is this an actual threat against... um, uh, Is this this inciting racial hatred or is this political speech? Is this inciting, inciting racial hatred or is it satire? Is it a joke? These things are really hard to to work out, and that's why we have lots of protections built into our law, so that it's really very hard to get a conviction for these things, and rightly so, because we have this presumption 
uh, in favour of free speech, or we used yeah. to. Martin, you've been a controversial documentary maker over your life, had a few brushes with Ofcom, if I remember. Um, where, where do you stand on this whole free speech thing? Should, should we embrace the total Wild West of the internet, which, as, as Victoria says, you know, there are um, some unsavoury parts thereof, and you know, you're talking about uh, you know, child abuse and terrorism and the rest of it. How, what's the state to do about that? Uh, problem, which I could see is real, and how could it do anything without, before you know it, you've got some bureaucrat deciding that what you've said might be legal, but in their vague definition is harmful? Well, I think the, 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 the problem is they're uh, highlighting one problem, and then the solution is not the solution to the problem that they're highlighting. They're saying there are legal things happening on uh, the internet. There are scams, there are fraudsters, there are pedos. Um, there are already laws against paedophilia and fraud mm -hmm. and scams. So why don't the coppers get off their asses and chase the, the scammers and the fraudsters and the pedos and lock them up? But if you listen to what they're saying, as, as Victoria says, they say, um, 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 one of the phrases I noticed, in, in, uh, they were saying, um, you know, what is illegal offline needs to be regulated online. I mean, what a bizarre phrase. I mean, you, if it's illegal, you don't want to regulate it. You don't want to lock the people up who are doing it. They're using illegality, illegal acts, in order to regulate things which are not illegal. And that's the incredibly insidious thing about this um, uh, uh, law. I remember when, I mean, I've always had a tough time because, as you know, getting classical liberal, this kind of, um, uh, you know, our ideas across on mainstream media has been tough enough. And so when, you know, the, the internet came along, when social platforms came along, I was thinking, thank goodness, you know, the gatekeepers are losing their power. You know, no, no longer are we going to be um, uh, sort of suffering under this cultural hegemony that we've got. But sure enough, they're trying to extend it. That's really what the game is. And it's happening under a Tory government. And some of the language used, I think, is absolutely terrifying. Harm. Keep us from harm. What a terrifying thing. And that harm includes psychological harm. I mean, for God's sake, we've got Putin over there. And everyone's saying, oh, well, of course, you can forgive all the Russians for being right behind Putin because there is state control of the media. You know, they, they don't really know what's going on. Putin and it will include the, the government. It, this isn't on the face of the bill yet, but there is lots of information coming out of the government. They do plan to include misinformation and disinformation as a category of harmful content. Exactly what Putin describes his. We will ban fake news. Who is to define very fake news? Sure as damn it, climate scepticism, yeah, yeah. that'll be out. Tell me, Victoria, do we actually think they can implement this? I mean, back in the... I, I'm, I, I can't get my head around tech. You know, I can operate it, I know how to get online. But, you know, back in the day when we, you know, just had four TV channels and you could just sort of say, no, that programme is not going out, we're slapping it. Now, I'm, I'm trying to work out... I mean, I watch videos that have been posted up from the United States of America. They'll include a link for me to go to their... Web. I'm, I'm trying to work out how this is policed in any sort of fashion. I mean, I'm not saying I approve of strictly policing four television channels, but I could at least understand how the government could go about doing that. The internet, I mean, uh, I mean, you need something a bit more than GCHQ to be looking through well, every single Facebook post, this, right? This, this is a really good and important point. So first of all, that side of it will be down to Ofcom, which to Martin's point, I am completely baffled as to why tactically, apart from any point of principle, why a Conservative government would create this huge power base in a regulator like Ofcom. That seems to me to be uh, a 
shooting yourself in the foot, quite frankly, for, for a, a right-of-centre conservative-oriented party. Um, but I think you're describing what you wished it was rather uh, than what it actually is. Perhaps yeah. I am. But, yeah, so Ofcom is going to be responsible for monitoring the compliance of the platforms with this new set of regulations. The platforms in turn, it's basically expected, and in some cases it will be mandated, that they will have to use tracking technology, monitoring technology, sometimes it, to the level of Ofcom specifying exactly what technology they have to use in order to uh, achieve the, the compliance with these duties. Now, perhaps even more chillingly, and this, you know, this all does sound like it comes out of some kind of totalitarian dictatorship, the enforcement powers that Ofcom will have will include the right to apply to court for uh, court orders to block um, errant platforms from being able to use ISPs, from having access to payment services, to completely jam their business um, because they haven't complied with, with their duties. I find that really rather chilling and actually reminiscent of what uh, the, the government in Canada did when they had the, the truckers protest and they used these emergency powers really very broadly to, to um, intervene on and, and block people from financial services. And, and the bill includes those kinds of powers here. Because it does acknowledge all those points you just made, that it's very difficult when firms aren't based in physically, geographically or domiciled legally in this country to, to enforce against them. That's fine. Ofcom is going to just make sure that they are cut off at source. So I'm just trying to work out here. If, if, if somebody on Twitter says something that is just factually incorrect, it might not, even, it might not be malicious, it might not be harmful, but if they say something factually incorrect, I don't know that the... Uh, and it might be accusing the IA of something that we're able to show is factually incorrect. What happens to that person and what happens to Twitter once we can... Well, well we, can, we can get the entire Twitter platform taken down in the UK as a consequence of this one inaccuracy on no, one tweet. it wouldn't really work at that individual level, but it might be seen as evidence that Twitter isn't running proportionate systems and processes to prevent harmful misinformation, if indeed this does get categorised as such. Interestingly, though, you've alighted on yet another aspect of the bill, which is new communications offences. They're getting rid of the old um, malicious communications offences, which you'd think brilliant. They were terrible, illiberal laws. Fantastic. That but they're going to replace them with something worse. They're replacing them with things that could actually be worse, which is intentionally uh, communicating false information that causes harm to others. And this is where your person who tweets something that's incorrect, if you can argue that you've been harmed by that, then that person potentially has committed a criminal offence. And again, Twitter will be obliged under the online safety bill to censor that at source, so it will actually never see the light. I made a, a tactical error in my Times column the other week about the proportion of people who don't pay tax. I literally misread the briefing I got from the IEA, one word I got wrong, which changed it round. Um, it's 40% of adults who don't pay income tax, and I said it's 60% who don't. I mean, you know, it wasn't so wildly out that I realised I was taking... I mean, I, I'm trying to work out how many years I get in Belmarsh in future for saying this sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, but also, I mean, that's a clear case of factual yes or no, but well, suppose you come out and you say you think um, global warming's a lot of old rubbish. You know, a lot of um, um, uh, uh, these social platforms will and, say and it's true. These, Climate change is beyond, people. it's true. Yeah, so, you know... people will say that you've caused them harm because yeah. you've really... Exactly. Well, that's sort of, to your earlier point, I mean, the thing is, uh, yes, it's hard to control the sprawling sort of thing, but if you control it to the degree that you marginalise those voices, you know, 
it is possible to get messages into Russia on this or that platform, you know, if you, go, if you know where to go. But if, you, if they're so marginalised that they have very little effect whatsoever on the general population, then you've done your job, you know, you have, you've excluded those voices. Um, and likewise, I think another insidious thing is that going through um, social platforms in order, in order to carry the censorship through. And so they can sort of wash their hands. You know, if they directly said, as a government, we are banning this, that and the other. But cleverly, they, go, they, they threaten the heads of Twitter, the executives, even with jail time. So yeah, obviously Twitter and the rest of them, they're gonna, when their compliance departments are going to say, we don't get into trouble with Ofcom, we're going to end up in jail. So they will go further than actually the legislation calls. The yeah. Absolutely further. And the government can say, well, it's not us doing that um, censorship. It's really insidious. Well, do you think that, that uh, I'm trying to give a bit of an optimistic uh, spin on this, do you think you know, the, the, the basic bones of technology uh, that we all have at our fingertips is now so impressive that freedom will find a way. I mean, to give you a very small example of, of trying to combat uh, Putin's censorship in Russia, like, you know, Russian soldiers who've been captured are being encouraged to phone home and explain to their families what's happening. Now, you're probably only getting to two or three people at a time. Uh, the Russian army, understands now confiscating mobile phones from its uh, soldiers in order to try and prevent this happening. But this is a tech, you know, I mean, a fairly simple technology. We think of it now, mobile phones, but we found a way. Uh, I don't know whether it's completely undermining the state control of the Putin regime, but it's sort of finding a way because everybody's got that sort of uh, a weapon in their armour, which 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago, uh, ordinary folk would not have had. Now we've got it. So if Twitter goes down that route, somebody will find, you know, it will die as a platform, or, you know, Elon Musk will buy it and fight every court case, which looks uh, potentially possible. Should we be more optimistic if the state comes in with this big, you know, draconian thing that actually, although we should oppose it, I don't doubt that, that we could be confident that actually new sources of exchange of information will find a way around it? I mean, I don't think that we should um, be confident that because of the advance of technology we will have more freedom. I think it's perfectly possible that with the advance of technology they will find newer ways to control us, more insidious ways. You know, their control of money through um, government-controlled cryptocurrencies. There's all sorts of... The potential for controlling our lives through this technology is also a problem. And what's worrying is that the, it's the Tories doing this. Supposedly... The Party of Freedom. You know, they've got a torch of freedom and all that sort of thing. I mean, if they are doing this, it's not like the, the Labour Party are going to come up and say, hey, guys, you know, um, uh, let's unravel this. Well, they say it doesn't go far enough. Martin, they replaced the torch of freedom with a, a logo of a tree drawn by a five-year-old. Oh, well, yeah. It looks like it was drawn by a five-year-old. Yeah, but we a, all yeah. know about the Nazis' connection with environmentalism. It's worrying. It's worrying. What, what do you think, Victoria? Well, I mean, I don't want to be too flippant about it. but Or, put another way, you gave an example of this guy who runs a, 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 a forum for whiskey. Might you get a kind of metric martyrs-style inflection point, that somebody running something that all ordinary people would consider is, you know, completely legitimate and within the realms of freedom of speech will suddenly be, have their business destroyed, not welcoming that happening, because, you know, they've incorrectly described what the alcohol proof is in one particular brand of whiskey, and this might cause harm to children, their business is destroyed. It would be a public outrage, wouldn't there, if that, something like that well, happened? I think... The, the threat to small businesses is, is, is real, uh, to, to innovative and challenger platforms, because the costs of complying this with this regulation are going to be enormous. And obviously, Google and Facebook, who I don't think particularly like this, but they've got enough money to throw at it that they'll kind of 
broadly be fine, whereas the equivalent cost of um, investing in all of this tracking technology and taking legal and compliance advice is, is much more burdensome for smaller businesses. So I'm not entirely sure that this is going to see a flourishing of new technology. But on the other hand, perhaps darkly comically, the Regulatory Policy Committee in its um, review of the government's impact assessment on the online safety bill pointed out um, that um, the, the, the government, DCMS, hadn't really considered the possibility of people just using VPNs to get around all yeah, this. Yeah, right. So they might be putting all of this legislation in place and it really doesn't have any effect because all the children, the VPN, so all you the children who it's supposed to be protecting are, are all claiming that they're in a different jurisdiction. Are by, just yep. on their VPNs. Now, whether Ofcom will come up with clever jamming technologies to get around that, I don't know. But it's kind of a bit disappointing that they didn't... Well, that's an example of my saying that technology will undermine the regulator. The whole battle is the entrepreneur keeping ahead of the regulator. Yeah. You, I'm, I'm not saying Too that... Too many in VPN VPNs. Services. So it might be that Nick Clegg becomes the most powerful man in Britain again. Right now he's at Facebook book he'll be gold plating everything you know thought he lost his seat he's going to be even more powerful than when he was deputy prime minister thought to conjure with any chance of stopping this bill or amending it victoria or it's politically very popular across the house i think the house of lords will have a lot to say there are a lot of very fine legal minds in the house of lords who will be all over this looking at the flaws in the drafting and all of the complexities i think the best chance of it falling is actually that it will just collapse under its own weight of complexity because people will realise it, it perhaps can't be made to work in its current form. Well, let's I want to end on that slightly <laughs> optimistic note. So we've navigated through quite a bit, uh, you know, Partygate, uh, the tax affairs of the Sunak family, whether Macron should be hailed as a hero and what to do about the government's unbelievable over-regulation of uh, the internet if they do indeed get their way with this online safety bill. Martin and Victoria, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks to all of you for watching. We'll be back next week uh, for another Live with Littlewood show to pilot a free market course through unfolding events. If you've enjoyed this show, please hit the thumbs up, like, and make sure that you hit the subscribe button and the notification bell uh, just below the screen. If you've got a few pennies spare and you want us to help keep the lights on, and that's becoming a more and more expensive thing with each passing week, do consider becoming an IA online patron. Details of that are in the show notes below. And thanks particularly to our top tier online patrons, Donald Blaney, Costa Manis, James Burns, Mark Edwards, Philip Ozuf, Richard Leader, Robert Appleby, and Timothy Worrell, and many others at the lower levels. But please do throw in what you can afford, and we'll keep pumping out free market, classical, liberal analysis of the world around us. My thanks again to Martin and Victoria. My thanks to Tom and John for their earlier contributions. Stay safe, stay free, over and out.